Welcome to the Shelf Warmers Podcast, the show about toys, why we like them, and their connection to bigger topics. I'm your co-host Sugu, and tonight we're going to talk about Dune. I'm your co-host Arby, and a special guest is going to join us to talk about the historical, philosophical, and mythological aspects of Frank Herbert's novel. And the movies! Before we begin, by way of introduction, I'm Darby Harn, the author of the novels Ever the Hero and A Country of Eternal Light. I'm a senior writer for Screen Rant. I collect comic books, Star Wars toys, and things I really should not be buying. <laughs> and I'm Sugu, your co-host. I work in IT and education, and I'm also passionate about writing and story. You can find some of my travel writings on allaboutjapan.com, where I've written various articles about my life and perspectives in Japan. I collect mostly Transformers, but I've recently started collecting Marvel Legends figures and die-cast cars, such as Hot Wheels. Since living in Japan, I've developed an interest in tabletop gaming, so I also have a wide collection of board games. Tonight, we're bringing back a special guest to talk about the newest movie uh, based off of a 1965 book, one of the... um, archetypes of modern science fiction we're going to talk about dune and with our special guest shaddy shaddy how are you doing tonight hey i'm doing pretty well how are you guys doing doing well doing well one of the reasons we brought you on is because you are a huge fan of dune i am yeah i i, I mean I, i'm not alone in that but yeah i hope i'm yeah. not <laughs> i don't want to be representative for all the fans of dune all over the world but yeah <laughs> i'm a i'm a pretty big fan of dune yeah that's so, accurate we held off on this episode until I could, until basically I could get caught up because I had to read the book and watch the, the 1984 movie and watch the 2021 movie. And if anyone who has read Dune knows that all three of those are quite a, a, a bear to just to take in, in a week. So it took me a month to read the book. Um, Sugu, did you watch the 2000 miniseries? Ooh. Damn, <laughs> I got more homework. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's all for today, folks. <laughs> and I was also going to say, I was just about to ask you, did you watch the 2018 documentary about Jodorowsky's Dune? Yes, uh, did you watch Jodorowsky? No. <laughs> all right, we'll be back next week, folks. <laughs> so I'm about as caught up as uh, nobody. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we've got Dune, uh, we're going to, we're going to be talking about it. So Shaddy, why don't you start us off? What is it about Dune that gotcha? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I think, uh, I don't know where this is going to fall in your podcasting schedule, but so maybe I, I can't say last week, that's when I listened to it, but previously, uh, your guest on the Obi-Wan episode had mentioned that he sort of grew up as a science fiction fan. Mm-hmm. and not so much a fantasy fan. So he did, hadn't really come across maybe um, some fantasy stories. I was probably the opposite a little bit. Um, I grew up as my mom was a huge fantasy fan as uh, when I was a kid. So she, she'd read books. I, I remember growing up watching or seeing her reading books by like Terry Goodkind, uh, reading the, the Sonara series, like 
she read uh, Robert Jordan's uh, what is that Wheel book series called? Like, yeah, Wheel of Time. I don't know. I hated the show so much. I think I scrubbed it from my brain. Um, <laughs> but I did read the books or some of them. Yeah, until it became pretty difficult. Um, but yeah, and I, obviously Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and all that. Um, and I think that I came into science fiction later on. I think my first major. I, obviously in love with star wars as a little kid but my first reading experience for science fiction was probably ender's game um mm -hmm. in junior high school and when i got into ender's game and started reading that uh, a bunch of my friends would say oh you need to read dune next that's your next thing and i i got into history after that and so i started reading things like romance of the three kingdoms and i got stuck that and for whatever reason i just never got into dune it was the thing that i kept bumping into for people who, oh, i can't believe you love science fiction i can't believe you ever read dune yet and uh, finally, I didn't read Dune really until I came to Japan. So I read it when I was 26, almost 10 years ago now. No, yeah, I do think the that, math. Yeah, you don't, <laughs> yeah, don't do that, please. <laughs> but I just think that, you know, if you ask me what was it about Dune that Dune, I think, came to me at a time in which I had, you know, at 26, I just finished graduate school a couple of years earlier. I was coming to it having read a lot of other different kinds of, of literature and also different sort of analytical techniques, you know, analyzing narrative, analyzing history, ways are different, like, you know, histories of memory, histories of emotion, histories of thought, right? And and having read Dune, I, I, I sort of looked at it more than just the narrative itself. I started to think about what it meant. I read, and we can get into this later, I read Dune from a post-colonialist, orientalist lens, like working from the milieu of... Um, Dr. Edward Said, who's the author of a book called Orientalism, right? This idea of, and there is definitely like an Orientalist, post-colonialist thread pretty heavily throughout Dune. And so I, I think that what makes Dune special is that it's a really deep text. And, you know, that's just getting into the original text itself, not into the sequels, um, which the sequels are pretty trippy. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they carry that work even farther out. And it gets... Yeah, I, what I think I find particularly interesting about Dune, and, and we can unpack this more as we go through it, it's a text that's unpleasant often while you're reading it. And I think that what I only became aware of while reading Dune, maybe for the second or third time, was that Herbert meant for me to be on to have unpleasant feelings while I was reading the text. He meant for me to to view what I was reading as a tragedy as a disaster out on the page, right? That Paul Atreides is not a hero, or he is a hero in the sense that for all of you who, have, who love uh, myths on, uh, who love Greek mythology, there's a wonderful uh, podcast called Let's Talk, Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. And there's an episode in which uh, one of her, uh, the author's guests, or I should say the host's guest, I think her name is Liv, talks about the concept of the Greek hero, right? And that we've been betrayed sort of it, in the West to believe since we're children, right? Heroes are upstanding figures and the Greeks would not have said that. The Greeks would have said, well, a hero is just a central character in a narrative or a story. They do things that make them heroes. So those are not good things or bad things. And in that sense, Paul's not an anti-hero. He is a hero. He does things that are terrible, even to himself. And his actions, whether they're really of his own volition or not, and that's a question, in the text and in the narrative, like whether he's really choosing to do anything or whether 
he just has to do things because the will of the universe or the will of the race, right. Or whatever that is like is demanding that he do these things. Um, and that's an open question. He doesn't really understand that himself. He wants to believe that he's making choices at times. And he other times says, no, I can't make this choice. I I'm making, I have to choose this path because it's simply the best path of all the paths that are available to me, but it's really already chosen for me anyway. It's an open question, and I think that that's what makes Dune so interesting. And I, sorry, spoilers for anyone who's listening to this who hasn't read Dune <laughs> or watched the movies or uh, or the the drama uh, television series. But yeah, I, I think like that was a really long winded answer to say that I think that what makes Dune interesting to not only myself to a lot of people is that every single time you read it, you open up new ideas and new concepts through that reading, and that you have to sometimes rip up and throw away old ideas and old readings of the text and go back to it. And, and yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a book and a, and a, and a text that keeps giving to you the more you read it and the more you interact with it. Does that answer your question? I hope so. Uh, it opens up several questions actually, which is kind of fascinating. Like I, there's a lot about what you just said that I agree with as both, um, someone who just got into it, like someone who just finished it. Uh, but there's also a lot of ways that that could be applied to um, several other things. Like, you know, one of the things we talked about with Obi-Wan, uh, both last week, by the way, um, with uh, Michael Rex, but also what you and what, what the three of us talked about before the before we started, which is about continuity and how just uh, reinterpreting and rereading the text and kind of letting it go throughout. I, I think that's fascinating. I'd be very curious to kind of unpack that with whatever time we have tonight. Um, and Darb, how about you? Like what got you into Dune and how, when did you read it and all yeah. those stuff? Yeah. I first read Dune later. Also, I, I was always aware of Dune. I, I, I saw the 84 movie and I always, I have a soft spot for that movie despite its problems, um, which are many. Um, but, um, I, I only read the book in college and it was, it was always, there was always something intimidating about Dune when I was younger and it wasn't, uh, I'd start to read it and it felt very much like a textbook, which in some ways Herbert, I think intended. And, and so there was something about it that just, uh, was not, uh, didn't have the passcode for the brain when I was a kid. And then as, as in college, um, the, um, one of my, uh, teachers, uh, Dr. Kim Cox, he was talking to me and he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be a writer. I wanted, he's like, you only need to read one book and that's Dune. It's like, it has everything it has sex, politics, religion, history, ecology, everything, mythology, all of it. And he's like, that that book is the intersection of everything that you'll ever need to be a writer. And he's like, you like Star Wars, you like et cetera, et cetera. Like, you'll love Dune. So I finally read Dune and read the other books. Um, and then I could appreciate at that point, um, you know, th what it has to offer. And um, I, I, I really like Dune. I, I, I enjoy the series, the, the Herbert novels at least. I enjoy what they're trying to do. Um, I find it fascinating from a historical and sort of um, there's something clinical to me about Dune. 
that I, I find different from my relationship to say Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Marvel, which is, uh, which they, they, they work on sort of different levels. And you see that in the movies, both of the movies, including the most recent one have, there, there's something very, uh, distant about them. And I think that's just a product of the source material. And part of it is, is that there's an analytic sort of aspect to what Herbert is doing. That's not, that is, um, in the intent of, of that it does not present and say Lucas or Tolkien or insert, uh, other, uh, author here. Uh, I, I think that's interesting. I think we were talking before we started recording, but Shadi had mentioned, you know, was talking about a lot in terms of the, <laughs> the, what goes into sort of uh, some of these things. And Sugu, you'd mentioned sort of continuity and just as a writer, um, maybe Shadi, maybe you remember, uh, you can better articulate than I can what you were, what you were thinking, but the, this sort of, the, you know, the, the reader experiences it as this is how it is. Mm-hmm. This is canon. This is continuity. The writer does not, ex- the author does not experience it that way. And so when you're writing something, especially a, a series that goes on for any length of time, if you have a better idea later, you're going to go with it, even if it's in conflict. And there's always an inherent conflict within within the authorial relationship with the reader and then, and also then, consequently through history, which we were talking a little bit about before, as well in terms of history is being written literally mm-hmm. as we're going along, and then it also serves a function as this is what it was, which is never mm-hmm. what it was because it only is what it is right now, and those two things are always in conflict, which is why you you produce things in. In comic books, which I'm so fascinated by, which is this this conflict between this is canon, this is how it always was, and then the rubber band that you stretch out from 1962 in the case of Marvel, which um, that that line is always shifting, and so this is how it was. But you know, Peter Parker was in high school and he was at a Vietnam War rally. He's actually just graduated high school today, so you know that type of a thing, 60 years, and so you you have those tensions in all these works that that then in Dune's case reflect history and sort of Herbert's part of Herbert's intent was to establish a future history that, but then, but is of course speculative. And then that tension then within the internal history of the work vis-a-vis the, the reader. And so all those things are fascinating, especially as you go on now into, I don't think we'll talk about, I don't know, maybe you guys will want to, we'll talk about sort of the, 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 the series that his, uh, Frank Herbert's son and Kevin J. Anderson have done. I, I, I don't find anything of value there, um, at all. Um, but I, I'm rambling at this point. So Sugu, I'm super curious. <laughs> I'm super curious that what would, so you've read the book, you, you've watched the movies. What, what is your sort of take as someone who's new to this as you've figured out i've first read the book what last month <laughs> or so last month two months ago or so and it it took the entire month to read i was quite surprised my um my goal this year is to read two or three books every month to kind of get back into reading like i have a queue of books uh dune is in that queue so it kind of shoved every other book out of my queue for that month because I 
could only read that one. Um, so as a result of that, I came to Dune having read a lot of other genre. Like I've read, you know, as, a, as an adult now, uh, four decades old, I've read science fiction books. I've read uh, history books, uh, philosophy, political, right, all that stuff. So reading Dune now felt very interesting because uh, a lot of when I was reading it, I likened it to Foundation and The Lord of the Rings um, in that all three of those have a mountain of lore sitting under the surface of uh, of all of them that add like a significant amount of legitimacy to the lore and it's all just sitting there that isn't really explained but it's there darby you and i have talked about this in our world building episode about this Mm -hmm. like the iceberg approach right so i thought that was really interesting it was a bear to get into and to understand what everything was and was not because herbert does very little explanation of what's going on and I almost feel like I had to read, I should have read the appendices first and then started reading the book. Um, <laughs> Cause that's, I, I feel like there's a bit in the beginning that I lost a lot of time reading because I just had no idea what was happening. Oh, and which was later explained in the appendices. So I, I kind of feel like that should have been different or sorted out a bit differently. The other thing, the other, my other big takeaway uh, for it is uh, like Shaddy was saying that it's a relatively joy maybe not joyless but it's not a pleasant book to read um, which is its strength in, in many ways it's not a happy-go-lucky everyone has a quip uh, I think that's good but the other thing about it that I, I found is that a lot of it is there's some, there's definitely some like dated issues with it like it's very much clearly a product of 1965 as a result of that the 2021 dune movie is an interesting update and there are several things i liked about that movie and what it updated there's also several things that it it shortened uh that i think kind of miss some of the impacts of the book but that could also be just like what we were talking about with michael rex about how uh it it reads like a novel (laughs) like there are lots of things that you can learn in a novel that you just can't on screen yeah i think i i'm rambling too and i I feel like that's going to be the theme for both this episode and also kind of mirrors dune as well because some of it just does feel like it kind of rambles on and then you eventually get to the point go sorry go ahead Oh, I was just going to say real quick, I, you know, so you're talking about, you know, the, the sort of, I think that, you know, you felt confused at the beginning. I think Dune is a really good book to talk about in context of something that we talked about all the time in college, which was this a concept of building a bridge to the reader. Yeah. Herbert doesn't. Yeah. Right. It's, it's you, you sink or swim, you're in or you're out, especially at the beginning of the book, in, which I, I, I think led to my own when I was younger, when I tried to read it, part of my issues with it. I think the movies reflect that a little bit, although the most recent movie does a lot of things to try to mitigate that. And I think the biggest thing is relocating Shani as sort of not the point of view character, but sort of the the your entry 
into the book as opposed to whereas the, the book is framed as these sort of diary entries or journal entries from Irulian, mm-hmm. whereas um, whereas the movie's positions Chani uh, because Chani is is infinitely for as far as I'm concerned more interesting although we're going to get Irulian in part two um, but I don't what do you think uh, Shaddy about all of that and what were you going to say before I cut you off? Well, yeah, actually, there was a couple of things that connected to me as, as you were talking. So thanks, Darby, for bringing up the journal entries, uh, I, those sort of histories of, mm-hmm. of I don't know what you would call it, the histories of Arrakis or the histories of, of uh, you know, King Paul or whatever, the God King Paul Atreides or whatever, I can't God remember Emperor, his title, yeah. God Emperor. So I think what's interesting when you talk about the appendices, there is this concept we're all reading it it feels a little bit like a monograph sometimes while you're reading it right and when i say i uh, one of my friends joked i had mentioned that, that i was reading a monograph um to a, f- a couple of friends in a group chat and one of the one of the people afterwards said to me well i, I have to admit that i had to google what monograph was uh so for any of you that are confused a monograph is that's a historical te- like it's a a, re- a book about history written by a historical prof- like a historian an actual professional and so it's not for example you know when you go to the history section and as i often do uh to find books for to read for fun there are your popular histories which are meant for your average reader and there are monographs that are produced for people who have training in history the difference you'll find when reading is that the writing is completely different. It's much drier, right? It doesn't have any historical, or it doesn't have any sort of flourishes that you would expect, right? And also the body of the text is simply different. The structure of the text is simply different. And so what you have, what I find much more aesthetically pleasing footnotes, and then sometimes you have end notes, right? And so sometimes you'll be reading it and you'll have to spend the entire time What's really frustrating about EndNotes is you'll have to spend the entire time flipping back and forth from the front of the book to the back of the book, front of the book to the back of the book. It makes it incredibly tiring. But that's a little bit what Dune is like, right? It's mm-hmm. expecting you to, in the middle of the text, to stop and go, wait a second, what does this mean? I guess I have to flip all the way to the back to try to find out. And it sort of has that sense, much like a lot of professional historians, like you both often... I think particularly Darby, but maybe I think a couple of times Sugu maybe talked about your time in college. I spent a lot of time in, in my professor's offices dealing with real professional historians. And as much as I loved them, they were not particularly interested whether you understood what they were talking about all the time. You know, they expected you to under, that was their specialty they were talking about. They'd spent their life researching something and they expected you to either know what they were talking about or to go find out or just not. And there's a little bit of a sense sometimes in reading, and if I'm not mis- mistaken, right, Herbert is an ecologist, right? He has a little yes. bit of that academic background in which, hey, I'm an expert on this. If you want to find out, you can find out. Some things you just don't know the answer to until you do the research to the background, and I'm just going to keep going. And that's a little bit, I don't know if that's by intent or simply by accident, but that's a little bit the way that Dune comes out. It comes out as a, a sort of a monograph it's a history, I think, one might argue, mm-hmm. more than a narrative sometimes. And it's also a little bit more of a monograph than it is like a popular history. It's meant as something that's supposed to be weighty and takes mental effort to get through, which is fascinating for the sense that it's become this massively popular text that you know has been read by generations of people now. You know, it's in the same, the same way that, you know, 
think about the way the Lord of the Rings is a fascinating, popular, wonderful story. And yet the Silmarillion is not something that people just pick up and decide to read. Uh, you know, I think all of us have read it. it. It's, it's an, it's a, it's a thing to get through. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. I, with the I, Silmarillion, I tried to get through it like four or five times back when I was in high school and college. And yeah, I, I still don't remember. I don't think I've ever actually finished it. I know that I I've started that, it several times. I find the dichotomy or the contrast, I should say, between Herbert and Tolkien fascinating. And maybe we'll talk about that as we go forward, especially in context of the similar alien, because it's, it's effectively a textbook. Yeah. And it, it, which is, it's interesting because I, 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 Tolkien, I harbored some criticism of Dune that I think lies in some of the academic aspect of Dune, which is curious given Tolkien's, uh, life and his, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he was obviously, uh, an academic himself, but, um, yeah, I do think absolutely shady. I, the Dune, Dune is a textbook of the future, which I think was Herbert's intent of his imagining a, a particular kind of future, which was he, he, uh, like me as a writer, he was not very good with tech and, and machines and things like that. So he did the smart thing, which is he just got rid of all of them. And he was like, we're not going to, he's like, I'm just not going to have them. So he orchestrated, or I should say he created this entire world in which machines don't play any role, which, and that led to a lot of philosophical and, and underpinnings, which I think are really fascinating and are very rewarding as you read Dune and reread Dune and explore because Herbert doesn't hold your hand going into it, but he absolutely gives you uh, guidelines out of the story and into mm -hmm. the deeper parts of it. And the when you consider things like the Butlerian, uh, Baltarian, I should, uh, is a Butler, I forget, Jihad. The uh, the there is so that's a real the real iceberg in the story. And mm -hmm. the Orange Catholic Bible. Yeah, <laughs> as you explore some of what the the meaning and the implication behind some of these choices that he makes in the deep ancient backstory of, you know, 10, 20,000 years, whatever it is of the, the text. Um, it's fascinating. You you consider, because actually, you know, the, the society that emerges post that is the society we meet in Dune, which is a society that resembles sort of feudal houses, sort of Greek feudal houses or, or things like that. But then actually it's not that different from where we're at today in terms of the way that the culture behaves, in terms of that it's organized in business and, or, or I, sh I should say finance and, and religion and governance are all basically the same thing. They always have been, but, but never in the, in the, in the, in the global way they are right now. And, and, and in Dune, they're in a cosmic galactic way, mm -hmm. um, which is why for me personally, I'll just hit back real quick on the sequels or whatever you want to call them by, um, by Herbert's son and Kevin J. Anderson, which is why those stories exploring the, the, that period, the going back to the Jihad, what were so, it was such a betrayal because it was basically, they watched Terminator and they're like, that, that's what happened. It was Terminator, and it that wasn't, I don't believe, because Herbert never described it, but I don't think that was Herbert's idea. But anyway, um, you know, there is there's there is a lot within the story, obviously, to explore that's fascinating as a reader and as a writer. I think Dune is very instructive as a writer when it comes to world building. Mm -hmm. Sugu, I, I like, not to, not to take over 
podcasting responsibilities but or like hosting responsibilities. No, i'm just curious to, to point it back at you I, I think like i'm interested you know one of the, the things that i've talked about since i've come to japan in talking with japanese people um who've maybe never seen star wars is i want to know you know what i i'm jealous a little bit because i came to star wars and much like all of us did as children right the we daily watched ten thousand, right right we you don't get to to make a choice you just watch a tnt reruns on sundays and saturdays <laughs> or whatever right so coming into dune maybe later on you know maybe in at a more mature stage intellectually you know i, I don't think i was intellectually i know that i was not intelligent at 26 <laughs> uh i had professors who told me as much but uh you know what what did you appreciate about dune in particular the story itself and what did you find lacking or what did you find Maybe, I don't know, because we, we should talk about the movie a little bit, too. You know, I guess I'll maybe stick with the, the book first and then move to the movie later. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, but, I, well, I'm happy either way. Although, strangely enough, I'm more familiar with the book than the movie. Uh, it took me five or six days to watch the movie. Uh, yeah. But that that's a, that's a product of my own life, uh, where I can only watch pieces of the movie over over a course of time but um yeah so it's very obvious that dune is um prominent in culture and has uh influenced a lot of writing since then like you can see the concepts and the ideas and the tropes that were first developed in dune that then just kind of played out through 60 years of narrative in, in other places like looking looking back reading dune now i'm like oh this is where this other thing got the ideas for this that the other um even simple things like the sandworm from beetlejuice right like you got that from from dune like you can start to see these kind of trends so for me it's kind of interesting that i'm like hey i'm finally included i'm finally in the zeitgeist I finally know what people are talking about now. Uh, so on the on the one hand, like that's kind of nice to feel. It's definitely a different read, and uh, you know, I I made the comparison earlier with Asimov. Uh, Foundation and Dune both were written around the same time, uh, mid to late sixties, and you could definitely read like the cultural milieu that dune was published in uh and the general kind of feeling um i don't think it's a book that could have been published or made from the beginning now in 2022 i think that i don't think it works with a 2022 audience unless you have that history and and part of that is look at the changes that the movie had to make in order to kind of make it fit a little bit better but you know the another thing is like 2022 audiences generally need the the uplifting moment they need the the quips they need the the general cynicism and the general satire and and sarcasm you see that in the marvel properties all all the time where there's always a, a little bit of comedy and like some weird moments you see that in Star Wars as well, uh, like these major properties. You don't have that with Dune. Um, Dune is, 
for better or for worse, a very straightforward story. It, there's no uh, hackneyed twists and turns. There's no this is uh, this is a fake out. It, it's very much it tells you what it's going to be and then it does it. Like it's a very straightforward story. Um, and to that, it made it easier to follow along. Uh, considering you know the textbook element of it, I'm not sure. Did I, I answer argue. your question? Uh, yeah, actually, there were some interesting things that you said while I was listening to you. I mean, I think that. Sorry, Darby, I'll let you talk if you had some thoughts. No, no, go ahead. You made an interesting comment that you said that you, and maybe you said this earlier too, and it caught me, that you didn't think that Dune is a story that could be written today with the problematic perhaps elements of it or the fact that it is a product of the times, you know, like the 1960s. Um, there are elements, I mean, clearly Frank Herbert is reading the news. He's seeing what's going on. The rise of nation states, nascent nation states in the Middle East, you know, this sort of post-colonial milieu, the rise of uh, states that are buoyed by oil, and mm-hmm. the West's addiction to oil. You know, I, I'm not sure if he'd read, uh, you know, for example, Fanon, Wretched of the Earth. I'm not sure if he was reading uh, Said's uh, Orientalism, which I mentioned earlier, was not written at, the, at that point yet. I think it's 1972, if I'm not mistaken, but I may be wrong about that. But for all of that said, though, I think that, I think that at its heart, Dune is Herbert's attempt to... And I don't know if this if he said this explicitly. He may have. I, I was reading an interview from him earlier trying to, to get a little bit of more backstory on his process of how he wrote it. But I think it is a critique of the hero myth. Mm-hmm. It's right. a critique of, of, you know, like Joseph Campbell's uh, hero, hero with a thousand, thousand faces. Hero of a thousand the, faces, right? The monomyth, yeah. The monomyth. Yeah. And I think that that po- that story is still possible to tell. And it would have taken a yeah. different structure. It would have taken a different shape. But it the story itself would have still remained the same, um, whether it was, you know, on a desert planet with a bunch of people who are Arabs by another name, right? Um, yeah, that's what I was going to mention, Sue, when you were saying, but could it be written today? I, I think there's a lot of things about Dune that are anticipatory. Um, one of them is the is the, this deconstruction of the chosen one slash strongman, and the other one is its uh, investment about the environment and dune is fundamental to um science fiction's dealing beginning to deal with fears about the environment and global warming and understanding man's impact on the environment um the it's really a a a title shift that occurs after that after dune that happens in, in science fiction proper but I think you could tell this story, this what he does, the deconstruction of the the monomyth uh, going forward out of Dune into his sequels, um, into the the other books. I absolutely, I think you could deal with today, and you could argue that it's way out in front of what most stories are doing. I, I don't think, you know, um, Star Wars doesn't really do it. It flirts with it with Anakin. But Anakin isn't really the 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 hero of that right. story. So. But but that's exactly um, what I mean, though. Like the the story in its general format, like the themes and all that, that's fine. But the the story itself, like what's on the text, I don't think that will work. Like 
you know, you're talking about deconstructing the hero myth. I, I think that's great and that works, but since Dune from 1967 to 2022, there's been a lot of stories that deconstruct the hero myth now that I don't think it would have the same impact. And well, can, wait, can I push against that? I'm sure. curious to hear what, what would you give as an example yeah. of, of that? deconstruction? Yeah. I just mean that like a lot of the stories nowadays have in, in this, like the basically postmodern where basically every story has been told where like you have, for example, Wolverine, Batman, those are no longer the, um, and this is not a deconstruction of the hero myth, but the idea that the anti-hero has come up since Dune, um, the the idea of the Punisher, for example, um, then within the hero myth itself, I'm drawing well, a blank I, right can now. Can I can I can I say something? I, I think that that's an interesting thing that you said. And before you started to say it, I almost said, "Are you talking about the anti-hero?" Mm-hmm. Because I think I just like to gently push against that and sure. say that I think. Paul Atreides is not an anti-hero. So when I was mentioning earlier that you can read, you know, I think that it's not for nothing that, for example, Atreides, and I didn't know this until today when I was digging into it, like Atreides is, the name is from Atreus, the house of Atreus, which mm-hmm. is related to ancient Greek tragedy, right? And and there is something while you're reading, I, I think that there's no way around it. Like it's a simple reading of Dune to read it as a, a typical hero myth, right? It's a simple reading mm-hmm. to say, Oh, this is fantastic. Paul is going to win. And you know that Paul is going to win. I, this is what uh, you and I were talking about the train that one day. You know, you know from the very beginning that Paul is the, the character. He's the hero of the story. He's going to, to win. He's somehow going to survive, despite the fact that everything is stacked against him. You know he's having these prophetic visions. They, they you know, The Reverend Mother comes to see him at the beginning of the story and test him with the Gamjabar. And you know that he's going to be a human. Right, you know that he's going to win this, despite the fact that everything is constantly stacked against him throughout the story. Mm-hmm. And it's the fascinating, the trick that that Herbert pulls through this telling of the story is that you start, or I, I think that I do, and I, I think a lot of people do. While you're reading it, there's a sense of dread that Paul feels, and you begin to feel it as well that you don't want Paul to win. Mm-hmm. If Paul wins, terrible things will happen. The jihad mm-hmm. will happen. It's a tragedy that Paul is going to become the god emperor mm-hmm. and he is the hero but the hero is not a good thing the hero is a disaster for humans it means death and destruction slavery terror it means everything that's awful in the universe and that's fundamentally different than an anti-hero an anti-hero just means that they break social mores that they're yeah, they're, right, a problem, right, they're a problematic right. hero but they're still heroes, right? At the end of the day, Wolverine, if you're, for example, over to call him an anti-hero, you know, maybe he's just sort of a grouchy guy and he's a curmudgeon, but he's still like at the, he, you know, he's the grouch of the heart of gold, essentially. Paul Atreides does not have a heart of gold. He's not a particularly nice person. He's not a kind person. He believes in justice and that justice means the death of millions and billions of people. And he has the temerity (laughs) to not kill himself right he could just end it all and he can do that that's that's the the one option that he's a coward and who and refuses to take that you know he always talks about well he's in the the melange right he's having these spice visions and he 
which I think is an interesting. I don't particularly like the way that it's handled in the movie, which you can get into later. But he's in these moments of which he's seeing, he's experiencing the future. He's experiencing this mm-hmm. time, the, the, the flow of time, right? Mm-hmm. He can break that. Time is not linear. It's a myth. It's a myth of his own subconscious that time is linear. Yeah, and the book addresses that. Exist. Right, the book talks about the, the anti-linearity of time, right? Yeah. That's the ways in which the blanking on the name, but the mothers and the sitches, right, can communicate with each other. Jessica Benny Jesseriff. Right, but also uh, not the Benny Jesseriff, but the, the, the mothers themselves, uh, sorry, the in the sitches. Oh, what am I talking about? Like the, the Arakeen, the, the sort of sisterhood of women who, who practice whatever you call shamanism, essentially, right? They're able to 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 jump into this sort of shared memory, this shared consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That fights against what Paul is sort of rationalizing for himself, right? That he simply has this path that's laid out for him and he can choose a few different sort of options for himself. And he's simply choosing the best option, but in- inevitably things will happen as they have to happen. He doesn't really have a choice about that. You know, he... He's furious with his mother, for example, for making the decision to give birth to him um, and refusing to follow that. Yeah, he, it's it's your fault, right? Obviously, a man blaming a woman for everything, but you know, it's his mother's fault for 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 her, you know, for her gall for thinking that she could be the woman who gives birth to the Kwisatz Haderach, right? And yeah, yeah sorry, I'll, I'll I'll ramble for a while, but I, I think that I will just say that I don't think that there's anything quite like Doom. I think that there is not another text beyond. It's not a horror right like if you we for example were to to create a horror and we're just like oh this is a terrible thing that that's happening i'm I'm meant to be disgusted meant to be shocked by this herbert is not writing a horror but he's writing a text in which he's saying that the hero which is a thing that humans fundamentally uphold as being this we we search for heroes and wow man i didn't know i was going to make a connection to last jedi but this is the point that rob that ryan johnson is trying to make that we demand that heroes exist for us, right? And if they don't exist, we become, we try to search for a hero anyway. We're going to take a quick break to let you know about some exciting developments on the podcast. First of all, thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying it. Uh, If you like our content and you want more of it, you can subscribe to our channel and get additional conversations between Sugu and I. So stick around after the episode for a quick sample of what you could get. If you want to give us any feedback, Feel free to let us know your thoughts and opinions at shelfwarmers at gmail.com or on Twitter at shelfwarmers. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So, right. Yeah. Let me, let me come in on that. Cause I, you're saying a lot of really interesting stuff there, Shaddy. And I, I was, I think about this all the time and, and the, the operating principle in my books and the Eververse books is this quote from uh, Bertolt Brecht's play on Galileo, which is that, uh, unhappy is the land that needs heroes. And in Dune, you have the deconstruction of the hero and in, in the system. And heroes, heroes are systems. It's a system that that civilization requires because civilization is inherently flawed and unjust. And but the hero means that you have, as Paul fears and Paul knows, and Paul ultimately acts out. The hero serves to um, not only uphold the system, but all to ultimately to destroy it, um, because the system eventually becomes flawed to the point it can no longer function. Requires someone to change it. Changing it usually means breaking it, at least in the sense that we understand. Really, what that means is just rebooting it. It sounds a lot like the Neo and the Matrix. 
Right. We've talked about this before, which is it's just it's the same cycle over and over and over again. The, the system produces a hero. The hero breaks it. The system uh, reboots, adopts the hero's values and progresses forward under under in, in a new set of clothes. And that's what's happening in Dune as well, which is that Paul Paul is is the hero. He's the God Emperor, but he's just all of them before. He's every one of them before. Actually, he's worse because it leads to this jihad, this butcher of how many people and the ultimately through his children down thousands of years into the future of the books uh, leads to this uh, what what's called the scattering in the later books, which is this ultimate sort of fracture of humanity in, in not not. It, it's it's complicated because Herbert imagines the sort of of the in, the sort of inevitable uh, success of humanity, which I think is really his interest, which is why he so did did, did away with machines, but also the scattering and sort of the ultimate breaking of the cycle, the circle, um, and so all those things are fascinating to me as a writer and as a reader and as a person who's super interested in history and realizing in my old age that this is all just we just keep doing this over and over and over again as neo found out to his shock uh you know he's done it seven or eight times before so um that yeah so i, I think about that stuff all the time and I, I think it's fascinating um and it leads and it may, there's a meta commentary on that as well within just the idea of it, it it's a story it's a work of art and it's also franchise it's a franchise it's ip and so it requires that it continues because people are trying to make money off of it and so all these things that we love and talk about this this industry that we participate in by talking about obi-wan or talking about dr strange the cycle is is um necessitated by money which is what herbert is trying to get at in the entire architecture of the galaxy in dune which is that all of this perpetu is ultimately based on money. Someone's making money off of someone, and they invent all this rhetorical, mythological, philosophical bullshit to justify it. You buy it, they sell it, we keep doing it. Yeah, at the end of the day, the spice must flow, and that's all that really matters. You betcha. You betcha. See, and I think that's one of the reasons why it can't... It, it, wouldn't, it couldn't be successful now, because it calls attention to that which needs to be hidden. Um, another well, thing that I was thinking about, uh, Darb, you and I have I, talked about uh, one of my favorite comics is Kingdom Come, but it's not well regarded because it calls attention to one of the problems in comics. Um, and I, and it, it kind of reminds me of that, too, is that Dune is kind of it calls attention to the problems of the system in which it, it exists. I mean, I, I just as someone who's writing a story like this with the, with these themes in common, I'll, I'll disagree <laughs> mm -hmm. that you can't tell these stories. Now, uh, Dune is successful. Now, uh, these stories are successful. Now, I, I think when we talk about, can they be told now? I, I think there, there are aspects of Dune that you wouldn't do today that Herbert wouldn't do. And part of that is, is, um, the appropriation of, uh, a lot, um, from cultures, which are not his, but the story, absolutely, you could tell today. It is being told today. I think that's why the movie was successful. I, I think that's why people keep going back to it. It has a different position. It has a different pole position uh, than you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and things like that. But it, but it's it has a position in, in sort of the culture, uh, popular culture, certainly. And I, I think you know it 
it it's sort of the reason that it it keeps become it we keep returning to it people keep trying to make movies about it the story of of dune's journey through live action is as fascinating as the story itself it is because of everything that it holds and the 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 the, the ideas and the 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 historical, mythological, philosophical, analytical underpinnings of the story are always going to be relevant in the same way that they are with Lord of the Rings, because they're 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 jacked into something that's primal. And oh yeah, internal. absolutely. What I'll be interested to see is, and this will be what I, I actually am. I have no idea. It's what I something I was thinking about while I was watching Dune Part One, uh, in small parentheses at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> talk about the the popularity of the movie. Right, so very good choice on their part to choose Timothy Chalamet to be Paul Atreides, right? And the character of Paul position in the movie for people who maybe have not read the book, and I'm sure that's a large portion of the people who watched the movie hadn't read the book and won't won't read the book. Paul is just, you know, he's he's another hero, right, for people watching. And so when you're watching the movie, you're expecting to see him come into his powers right you know he has this terrible mm. i think it was it was meaningful for them to move up the trial of the gamjabar to the very beginning of the movie right and also to move up the lady jessica right uh training him to use the voice a little bit earlier which i wasn't comfortable with and kind of bothered me just a little bit to see them using it but i understood why they were doing it right they, they need to position paul as a person with power and with promise right he, you're asking the audience to become invested in this person and invested in the payoff, the promise, right? That he's eventually going to become a, you know, for lack of a better word, like a badass at the end of this, a supreme being at the end of the story, who's going to be able, just like Luke, at the end of the original trilogy, he overcomes his villain, right? Through his supreme power. Although, even as a child watching Return of the Jedi, sometimes you're like, well, he didn't really beat Darth Vader, did he? But, uh, which is maybe the, the reckoning that, that Luke gets in the the Mandalorian series, right, in which he becomes finally becomes a badass, uh, for lack of a better word, right. That's the and Shaddy, it's also what they're. Shaddy, you're gonna send me down some roads, man, but I'll pass. <laughs> okay. I'll pass. <laughs> That's... Sorry, I'll, I'll I'll let that sleeping dog lie then. But I think that what's interesting to me is how they're going to pull off, or if they'll pull off that switch, in the second movie, when if and when it comes out, when it comes out, right, of. Mm-hmm. Paul is this person imbued with tremendous power and that tremendous power is problematic. And is he going to be portrayed as a problematic hero? Is he going to be portrayed as a person who, you know, he gets grouchy, he snaps at his mom, which I also didn't particularly like the way that that was played in the movie. Obviously, he's, a, he's an asshole to his mother in the book as well. He's pretty awful to her. And that's problematic. That's, Sugu, I think, something that would require a reckoning, maybe perhaps if the book is written today. Right? The way that he... It's a very... It has a very... There are, I would say, misogynistic overtones in Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, and least, not the least of which is the awful way that Paul treats his mother as a traitor, essentially. Um, and as an object to be used from the very beginning of the book until the end of the book. Mm-hmm. But I, I will be interested to see the way that he is shown in the second movie. Is, it, is he this person who is just the hero that you want to win? And he is going to win, and so it's great. Or is it this is a person who realizes that his existence is, all, is like a tragedy? He realizes that his existence is terrible, that he's going to do these awful things, that you don't, that you don't necessarily want him to win. Now, I think that because it's a popular movie, it won't be shot like that. 
it won't be told like that. Mm-hmm. But that would be interesting to see. And that was something I was thinking about the entire time. Um, you don't get a sense of that in the, in the beginning, in the, the first movie, I, I should say. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would be interested too to see if, if they diverge at all in the, in the in the next part, in the next movie, in the way that the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Peter Jackson avoided, you know, sort of the, the, the ending of the books. You know, he, he, he didn't want it to be a bummer, so he left out the scouring. So, mm. um, you know, like, I wonder if... I, I feel like uh, Villeneuve is a huge fan of Dune, so he'll probably commit to where the story is going but i wonder for the you know for the if <laughs> for the sake of the movies and, and you know uh the box office they'll be like no paul's a, paul's okay paul's nice you know. he's not just gonna throw a shot throw aside jenny and just say whatever i mean i got a girl on here so I'm, yeah. hey sorry about that uh just gotta do what i gotta do right which would be completely unbelievable in any context anyway but um but that would be it'll be interesting to see because they've cast Florence Pugh as Aurelion, which I think is fantastic casting, and it'll be, you know the the way that plays out in the books with you know this this political concession he makes to marrying her, and then you know Chani diminishes in the books. Unfortunately, they clearly that's the major one of the major changes in the movies is the is Chinese placement and everything. So I'm really fascinated by where that's going to go. You know, like if that may be one thing that changes too. Yeah, it'll be, sorry, Suga, we've talked for a while. Is there something you want to chime in? No, I mean, it's just, it's what I'm talking about. Like the changes that they're making for the movie is how, is how many alterations you have to make from Dune, uh, from 1965 in order to make it work in 2022, you know, like, one of the things that I found fascinating in the book is the idea of, uh, in the end, Jessica was basically telling Chani that there is no shame in being the concubine. You don't have to be married uh, to to the emperor. You can still have all of the all of the power, even without the prestige. And I, I thought that was interesting. That's the very end of Dune the book. And I, I, I feel like that's hinting towards something bigger, but then the book ended. So I'm curious to see what, how the movie is going to play that off. But you know, in terms of the misogyny, it's not just the misogyny in, in the in the book. There was also the casual transphobia and the casual fat shaming, um, that was in there. And Darb, you and I have talked about that, in terms of Thor, but then the like the 1984 movie had a little bit of the not transphobia sorry homophobia mm. the bit, 19 i'm sorry quite a bit actually i mean that that initial scene is played pretty disgustingly right? yeah the 1984 movie implied it but still toned it down from the book and then i think the 2022 movie 2021 2022 movies uh i think they're just gonna skip right past it because it it doesn't fit anymore it doesn't work it was just there to make the harkonnens vile and that that doesn't work maybe darby you might know more about this i I can't remember if i read somewhere that you know originally part of the reason that the baron harkonnen 
Is it? It's Harkonnen, right? I believe. Like I always. I don't know. People have saying that the 1984 mispronounced it. People said that the 2021 mispronounced it. So who knows? I prefer Harkonnen, so I'm just going to go with that. I I appreciate your pronunciation. Um, (laughs) The Baron Harkonnen's obsession with Fade Rautha is partially that he reminds him so much of himself, right? And Fade Rautha was a fairly fit person when he was younger in his life. Um, Potentially, when he fathered the Lady Jessica. Um, sorry, spoiler warning for anybody who uh, didn't read. Is it? Did he, is he fathered Lady Jessica, or is he fathered Lady Jessica's mother? I can't remember which one. Um, I think but, it's her mom. Is it her mother? Okay. I think. But they, so. that's that's a, that's essentially why, right? It's the, the joining of those two bloodlines, which again, that was sort of predestined, you know, predestined, right? Although perhaps a bit too early, right? But it, he was apparently poisoned. That's that's why he gained weight, and so that has not just to do with the like. It's not, for example, that he wasn't able to stop himself from eating. For example, he, you know, he he made poor diet choices, what have you. Like, there's an element to that, but I'm not defending it. I'm I'm saying that that's in the sequels, though, right? Because that is no, not I in the original I, book. No, that might even be in the card game or something like that. It's mm-hmm. on the Wikipedia for for Dune. Because the <laughs> so the, the book itself the just says that he's uh, like Jabba the Hutt fat. Like he is so fat mm. that he needs help from the suspensers to left to help him be mo- uh, mobile. Yeah, the the Baron is unsubtle, and he he's a, he's meant to represent this gluttonous aspect of the entire enterprise. And you know, I I, I think I understand that aspect of it. I you know, vis a vis fat shaming. I I I think there's obviously an aspect of it which I think differs a little bit from what we were talking about in Thor, where that was sort of Thor becomes and by extension then people of size become the butt of jokes. I think I don't I don't think that's the intent in Dune, but I but it clearly he's meant to that the whole thing is meant to represent gluttony, which in itself is that goes back to this really tired idea, which the reason you're fat is just because you're inhaling everything, which is not why. But I think um, the Har- I think Baron Harkonnen, like both his gluttony, if you want to use that word, and his sexual violence, which I think I mean, his sexuality isn't portrayed simply as like cut and paste homosexuality. It's portrayed, I think, as sexual violence, right? He's a predator. Yes. And you have to view him, I think, in the milieu of, or you should maybe view him perhaps in the milieu of the entire imperial court, right? Or the galactic, I don't know what's called the imperial court, right? Or mm-hmm. the lands rat, sorry. The um, lands rat, yeah. Everyone in that, uh, who's the guy, what's his name? Uh, him and his wife who, who show up. The Count? The Count, right? Who Fenrir? Has the Fenris? No. Fenrir, yeah. Who mm, uh, mm, talks mm, mm. like this. Uh, I, which I I was really hoping... I hope that, that Jeff Goldblum is playing that character. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, would be, that would be amazing casting. But it's also because they themselves are also projecting a particular kind of morality that we wouldn't appreciate, right? I mean, they, they're, he's essentially... The Count's wife has sex with Fade Rautha, right? the intent to have like to, to, to preserve those genes mm-hmm. they exist in the kind of things in which their morality is not the morality that we espouse right we aspire to whereas oh yeah for example paul atreides or the jared or not jared almost said jared leto good god no thank you um no. <laughs> uh, leto atreides the atreides family they're sort of the upright 
upstanding like we may not agree with all their techniques but this is what we would see as people who are like morally act in a way that we can appreciate yeah they're meant and to so, be although they yeah. still have their own moral issues i think according well to the sure they're anyway. the royalty right well, anyway um yeah. right i mean all royalty is essentially built on exploitation destruction violence right I and mean, we just had i'm not going to get into the jubilee sorry i was about to go down that road and i won't get into that um but this idea of which is a thing that is very briefly touched on in the books right the idea that royalty only exists at the expense of all the people who are crushed underneath them right and and mm-hmm. um and now the idea is billionaires and capitalists are only exist uh dude uh same idea but now instead of royalty it's capitalists right yeah it's all it's oligarchy you just you just you just shift the goalposts mm-hmm. so i yeah I, but you you have a right to no i think you need to critique the text for that right mm-hmm. it needs to be critiqued it needs to, to come into a reckoning for that and herbert who knows i i i read today that maybe his depictions of the baron harkin had to do with i believe his son was a homosexual which i wasn't aware of his second son Mm-hmm. Um, so might there's some argument maybe that his this has to do with his the relations between he and his own son, which he wouldn't be the first author, right? He was writing out right. fe- personal foibles, right, or issues that they were dealing with on the text, right? And that's how they tried to deal with it. Yeah, yeah that, that, that never doesn't justify that just doesn't justify <laughs> whatsoever. In were fact, the three of us talking easy. about Orson Scott Card and Ender's Game the last time we talked? Not yes, on the podcast, yes. were we? Or was it on? The I podcast? think it was on the podcast, but it might have been on the pod. We definitely talked about it. But it was um, the three of us, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're always like the thing, you know, with the author and Chad. Shadi, you were talking before we started a little bit. I, I, I came into it late about the the death of the author. You, you always have to consider the context in which the author is writing. It's the same thing with Tolkien. The Tolkien, we love Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings has so much to offer. There, there are in, there are things you have to take in mind with Tolkien and who he was and when he lived, and that as you do with any author, you know, and their thing, you just, it's 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 the good and the bad. It, you know, it is what it is. Tolkien, like Herbert, gives us all these things that are fantastic. Tolkien is um, Lord of the Rings is utterly, arguably horrific towards women, mm-hmm. with the exception of Eowyn. And a-, a you know, Eowyn obviously gets the all-time mic drop moment at the end of the book, which redeems the book, I guess, and in, in some respects. But it uh, out absent of her, it's awful. And and so, but yet we value the story, and you know, but the, there's all these things that you have to consider with all of these stories. The same thing with Star Wars. Star Wars is reaching the point now in culturally where it's tipped over into um you know generationally where um the locus point has shifted from the immediate passion of the story to considering what it is where what it was and where it's going and that's a that's where that's where lord of the rings and dune have been for decades well star wars is just now entering into that um and so the our our perspective on star wars is going to shift culturally and critically as it ages um vis-a-vis where George Lucas was when he wrote it in 1970, whatever. So, you know, th- those are all things that you, I think you just have to consider. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in considering intent, it, whether it's it's you know, 
I'm reading it or I'm appreciating another, another's writer's work. I mean, one thing that was always when we were in college and we were in the writer's workshops, that was one thing that was always dismissed and discredited was authorial intent from the author by meaning that like you, like you're sharing the story, you're workshopping your story. You became the least important person in the room mm-hmm. the day that you shared your story. And I, I never believed in that. I'm a big believer in intent because I think intent is instructive to the author and the reader. And so I, I, I'm always, when it comes to considering these texts, I'm a big, I, I'm, I, I'm very always curious of what the intent was. And sometimes the intent was awful and you get awful people like, you know, I don't know, JK Rowling, who seems like a good person until she's not. And then that, does that discredit Harry Potter? Well, no, not for millions of people. So, but that, those are all relationships that you have individually with the text, but. But along those lines, I mean, you know, it, it's good to acknowledge intent too, but when you're the audience, when you're the reader, you you need to think about impact instead of intent. Like the author could have intended X, Y, and Z, but if their impact is very different, then that's what you got to go with. Your audience is the one yeah, that it- ultimately is going to be deciding whether the intent is successful or not based on how it was impacted. Or how it the, impacted. It, they, the, the audience will always take their own meaning away from your intent. Your intent. That's why I, as an author, bias uh, out in front, um, you, your intent matters because it fits context. Because the reader is always going to take away their own. They have their relationship with the book. They don't have a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And their experience of the book takes place between their ears. So if you're curious, if you're if you're if you're going to approach it from a, a critical point of view, then you should you should be curious about what the the author's intent was. Well, yeah, sure. For the personal for for the personal experience of the reader, no, their the impact is their experience of reading the book. Your your intent doesn't play a role in that, except to the point that we, we, you've created something that um, that performs as it should whether that, you know, you, you intended this to be exciting or scary or whatever, right? And that it works on that level. So most successful authors or artists succeed in that way. Beyond that, we're talking about things that have cultural impacts and, and things like that, which are beyond the author's control in any way, shape, or form. And then that, re- I, I think from a, what the thing we're doing right now, which is trying to critically locate Dune, it requires an understanding of intent. Well, at the same time, this come in, in my mind. This comes back to one of the things that Shay said right at the right at the beginning. It was, you were talking about how um, Frank Herbert, as an academic and as historians, they write. They have zero uh, filling in the gaps, and you either learn it on your own and then come back later, and and basically you're on your own. And it's that type of thing. Like, you know, for us with Frank Herbert, we have to guess his intent because he wasn't clear about it. He, we can only guess about it because it's up to us to kind of read and fill in the gaps on our own. And that's where I I would say you'd need to pay attention to the impact as well. But it's also, Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Shaddy, because I'm I'm about to launch off a cliff here. Oh, no, like I I do like, Without getting into the mechanics overall, because both of you are are much better versed as writers than I am, I'll I'll say this: I I think one of the things that we have to be careful when reading Dune 
and a lot of other texts, of course, but we have to be in particular careful when reading Dune is that we don't lean too heavily into one particular reading of it. So, for example, you can read it as historical text, right? So you could, or you can read it as a text written by a person who's trying to write uh, history, right? So with that particular writing technique. But you can also read it as a person who's writing esoteric, religious sort of text as well, right? And so when you're reading it with that frame of reference, right, or reading it through that lens, I should say, it becomes a completely different text in your approach to it. Like, so whatever his authorial intent from one side was, it has a different sort of intent from a different side, right? And in that case, so for example, you know, if you've ever done any work with religion, for example, there's a particular sense that there's always a truth that you're trying to dig at. And the, the deeper that you dig into it, the more there's a truth to it. But any good religious text, good religious text, any religious text rather that's, that has existed or continued to exist, right? Um, well, sorry, I'm about to launch off onto a different cliff too, but I, I think like one of the things that we were getting at earlier with histories was you mentioned something about how there are parts of the book that just don't seem like they're really going anywhere. That's what history is. There are oftentimes throughout the story uh, when you're doing, as a real historian, one of the things that my professors told me in school was that you need to also write as a good historian, write about those chance meetings that led to nothing, right? Uh, like the danger of narrative, the danger of narrative history that we unfortunately inherited from ancient Greece was to not be interested in those possibilities that never came to fruition, those historical possibilities. We're supposed to, like, those are just distractions for us. Inevitably, what we need is the most important aspects to get us to today. And that's what you really need to find. And what that did was, that's, it was it, that's inherently the creative process is a destructive process. And what I find interesting sometimes about Dune, both as a history and as a, maybe a religious text as well, so we've got, like, these random excerpts from the orange Catholic Bible and from the, I'm not even going to try Butlerian. Uh, what was that? Uh, Butlerian uh, Jihad. Yeah. Jihad. Like there are these random texts that don't particularly mean anything. They could mean a lot. They could mean nothing. They could just be a distraction to you. They could, they could just be uh, Herbert throwing it in to confuse you and to, to, to lead you down a rabbit trail that takes you nowhere and you have to drag your mind back to the narrative itself. And they may be unproductive and they may produ be productive. They might be a productive after a third reading. And I don't know if that's his intent. I don't know if that was why he wrote it like that, or he just wasn't a good writer or he was a great writer or what have you. I think that that's what makes that, that text particularly interesting and why people keep going back to it maybe. And so I'm not saying that as a defense. I'm saying that that's a, that to me is just one more wrinkle in the story. And that's why it continues to be a, a story that people keep wanting to read after all of this time. And I don't know that the movies will have that impact, but that's why the story itself, that the, the novels and uh, God, or, you know, Messiah, Dune Messiah or Messiah of Dune, I can remember the, the wording of the, the sequel mm -hmm. is even more so. Uh, good God, uh, like reading a, tr a slow, slow motion train wreck. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Darby, you wanted to say something, too. Yeah, Darby, you were going to no, launch no. yourself off a cliff? <laughs> oh, no. I just, I, I, this is the stuff I think about a lot in some way or another on some level, and, and but I'll spare everybody that. But maybe to go back a little bit to Tolkien, 
I think one of the thing, the most fascinating things to me about the whole thing is someone who enjoys both Dune and Lord of the Rings is this sort of tension that existed in Tolkien, uh, not between Tolkien and Herbert. I don't think they ever corresponded, but Tolkien in one of his letters uh, famously said that he, he intensely despised Dune, but he never said why. Mm-hmm. And so one, one thing Tolkien scholars try to identify as maybe what that was and i think if i understand tolkien correctly tolkien always detested he he intensely despised also any allegorical reading of lord of the rings like just that was like you if you wanted to get a a angry response from tolkien start talking about allegory a dune is allegorical um and dune is obviously a different beast and different animal than Lord of the Rings, even though they have, they're very broadly similar. Um, but I think that's part of it. And I, I think the, one of the reasons Dune holds up um, and offers some, because it is allegorical and you can, you can apply to it wherever you are in the moment. You can, you know, you, there are historical and mythological, philosophical underpinnings. And there are things that in 1965 that were, people could in their, in their moment could apply to Dune that we can apply to it in 2022. Uh, the same thing is true of Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, it, you know, despite Tolkien's resistance, you know, Tolkien was wrong about a lot of things. Uh, Tolkien uh, also uh, didn't think that Irish Gaelic was an actual language. He was wrong about that because he was a snob. But he's also wrong about the fact that um, that Lord of the Rings was not allegorical. It is. It is allegorical. And um, you can apply a lot of different things to it. Um, and it, it, so just to reference intent and Tolkien's intent was one thing, obviously, um, the reader, the culture, as uh, reaction to it was completely different. And as the author, you lose complete control of that. And, and people in Tolkien's position and Herbert's position and Lucas's position have no control whatsoever at the, in JK Rowling's position, uh, you know, they have no control over their work at that point, regardless of how hard you hold on. George Lucas's case, he let go. In Rowling's case, um, I wish you would let go. <laughs> but um, the uh, you know that type of a thing. So that that's very difficult. But you know, I, I think that whole that you know, as a as a writer and as a reader, both, I think those things are fascinating. The sort of tension between uh, allegory and, and and you know the analogy. Um, you know, where I think. You know, the, the allegory implies something hidden. You know, it represents something possibly that you can, that you as the reader apply to it. So the Galactic Empire in Star Wars is an allegory for insert fascist state here. Obviously, we, we think of it mostly as the Nazis because a lot of the iconography of the Imperials is, is Nazi type stuff. But you can apply anything to it, right? Whereas the, the analogy would be like, you know, Spock and the Vulcans in Star Trek are, are analogous to being autistic. So that's a reading that people applied to it that um, was, I don't think, was the intent. That type of a thing. And, and Tolkien would have you believe that Lord of the Rings is uh, analogous to, you know, whatever. Insert whatever here. Certainly his experiences in World War One and sort of, you know, his concerns about industry relative to, to Britain's, na- <clears throat> excuse me, natural state. But it is an allegory in the same way that Dune is, and sure. that's why they both sustain themselves. But rant over. I'm sorry. Uh, just real quickly, do you think that Tolkien had a thing against Dune because it was spacey and science fictiony instead of fantasy? 
Like, well, we, could we it just be that sure. surface level? It could have been. Uh, he he never elaborated, but um, he uh, I, I you know the speculation is is that he bounced off hard some of the things that he was most vocal about um, elsewhere, which is the sort of these these sort of things. And and Dune is an analytical. We talked about it here in the pod. It's a textbook ish type book. It's analytical. It's historical. It's all these things that. Lord of the Rings isn't. Lord of the Rings is, is sort of a, a a mythopoetic sort of structure. It's 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 a it's a it's a prose poem in, in Tolkien's mind. It's a lot of different things that Dune isn't. But but Lord of the Rings is ultimately Lord of the Rings is a story which is part of an Ur text, which itself is a textbook, which is the Silmarillion. It's it's mm-hmm. you know the Lord of the Rings didn't exist. He didn't create Lord of the Rings and then. Um, derived a world from it. Lord of the Rings came out of the world that he'd been creating since he was 16 or whatever it right. was. And also, these languages and these stories. And mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I feel really bad. I just got excited. Um, I interrupted you. I, I, also, right. I also wonder if there is... This is me just pulling from the air, but it's funny that Tolkien uh, didn't want people to, to read his text allegorically because that was the reason that I was allowed to read Harry Potter. Uh, excuse me. That was the reason I was allowed to read Lord of the Rings and why I was not allowed to read Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. My, my, I was a Pentecostal Christian growing up. Um, my mother converted us. I chose, didn't have a choice to become Pentecostal <laughs> at the age of 13. Mm-hmm. I was told I had to be because she was. Um, and that's not, I'm not being bitter about that. That's just the truth. And like a lot of children, you don't get the choice. You, you find out later what you are, right? But as a child, I was told I was Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And I was allowed to read Lord of the Rings. We were allowed to have it in the house, even though it had magic and, uh, you know, and wizardry and all that. Um, because she and a lot of other Christians viewed it as allegory for Christianity. And they, they sort of held on to the fact that Tolkien was a religious person. He was Anglican, right? If I'm not mistaken. Um, C.S. Lewis. He was Catholic. He was Catholic and C.S. Lewis was Anglican, right? Uh, So. um, Yeah, he actually, uh, Tolkien actually was largely responsible for C.S. Lewis returning to Catholicism. Right. Um, Right. And, and, uh, excuse me for trying to make both of them Anglican. Sorry for all those people out there who were offended. But there's also a sense that I, I think that, and I don't know if this is Tolkien's, maybe dissatisfaction with with uh, dune but lord of the rings is a fundamentally hopeful book right it's a hopeful text it's a it's a text that believes in the end at the end of the day that good wins out right there's a hope to the thing even at the darkest moments right at mordor you know or you hope in your heart right that some goodness will come and save the day and dune is not that dune is an anti-religious text right it's a it's a cynical text it's destructive and disgusting and angry and foul and there's no hope in the text right or and if you do hope for something it never leads to anything good in particular right and i wonder if that was part of part of tolkien's dissatisfaction with dune it's just a fundamentally it comes from a different place it comes from a different concept of the world and the structure of the world right Right. There are no eagles I think flying right in on. at the end of the at the end of the text to save the day, right? <laughs> I mean, Tolkien. That's sort of where we all may may think that Deus Ex Machinas are terrible. Um, Tolkien certainly didn't think so. He thought that they were a real facet of reality. That sometimes God does just put His hand down and 
pull because that happens sometimes he thought that was a real that was a reality um and maybe that was influenced sometimes people just that's why they say that there are no atheists in foxholes right sometimes miracles do just happen mm-hmm. dune doesn't believe yeah, that. i you're right on i think i the, the tolkien is, is his faith and his catholicism directly informs lord of the rings to the point you're just talking about his concept of Gollum accidentally falling into the volcano is precisely that it's it's the hand of god it, it's this moment of divine intervention the eucatastrophe we talked about on the pod the concept of the long defeat Tolkien sort of this idea that this cyclical sort of, uh, you know, uh, eternal battle between good and evil, which is antithetical, I think, to Dune, because the the, Tolkien's belief and faith is that the struggle is forever. It's cyclical. You lose, you win, you lose, you win. Dune Herbert's thing is, I think, ultimately the the breaking of the cycle and and literally and figuratively in the final act of, of, of his books is the scattering, which is the complete destruction dissemination of humanity and and the structure and and the evolution of humanity out from where it was to what it may be and and herbert doesn't know where that's going but i think that is it's the repetition of the cycle in paul in its worst sort of peak quote-unquote form and then through paul through paul's uh, children and grandchildren um the ultimate sort of destruction uh, breaking of the cycle that then leads outward towards whatever who knows because he doesn't know and that I think that's the point and um, uh, I think those two things don't for in Tolkien's mind probably don't line up and I think you're right on is that that also <laughs> real quick and then I'll stop uh, Tolkien probably bounced off the concept of the orange Catholic Bible too but <laughs> well, it also gets at this concept right that you know, I, I, for as much as I despise Neon Genesis Evangelion, I talked about it in the last podcast as well, so I apologize for bringing it up again. But it gets into that idea at the end of, well, spoiler warning for Evangelion, an anime that's almost 20 years old at this point. But uh, the end of Evangelion is all of humanity merging again into one, right? And they, 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 seek, they, they essentially lose all of their individuality and merge into a single consciousness, which perhaps has its origin in uh, very, very old facets of uh, Judaism, maybe um, pre-Second Temple, maybe even pre-First Temple, like the the bosom of Abraham, which is a kind of uh, vaguely defined concept in the Pentateuch, right? The original text of the, of the, the Old Testament that just everyone returns to the bosom of Abraham at the end of when, once you die, right? If you, if you're in proper covenant with Yahweh, now on the one hand that it gets to the idea why that, why it changes, right? Like that, that concept is a fundamentally terrifying thing. Horkheimer and Adorno, you know, that the, the Frankfurt school of critical theory might say that that was a fundamentally terrifying concept to the, to early humans after a while, right? As we develop civilization as, as the enlightenment begins to take hold in its earliest stages, and humans began to develop this concept of individuality apart from the tribal structure. Um, it became really terrifying on some level for us to, to lose our individuality and to become merged with something else and to, to lose who we are, to become part of something bigger. But that gets at that point, like none of us wants to be 
like everyone else that, that we want to believe that we're individuals we want to believe that we have will we want to believe that our lives have meaning and purpose I and mean, it's not just for the sake of any kind of broader sort of you know we don't want to believe for example that i wake up in the morning and the only things that i'm really motivated by are, by are passing on my genes to the next generation so that my species doesn't die out whereas frank herbert says mm, that's 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 the whole point of all human existence is simply to get humans to the next stage of evolution right um there's a race consciousness there's a, a human consciousness that paul is just one part of and it could be that the lady jessica or the benny jesuit or the, the sort of unholy um organization of women who are trying to take control of that and move it on to the next stage of development rather than letting it happen by itself um it could be that that tolkien found disgusting and weird right <laughs> he just found that that sort of anti-humanism that's latent in the text um we're not even latent right it's a, it's a fundamental part of the text is an anti-humanism um yeah so it could be that, that that he found sort of reprehensible about it um it does i don't i i've never actually come across that he didn't care for dune but it wouldn't it doesn't surprise me whatsoever um he's probably not alone right uh if you really take a, sure. a deep reading of the text yeah yeah i i i think it's uh tolkien sort of i i'm always i i, I love lord of the rings uh, i love uh T tolkien's sort of uh, view on a lot of that stuff within the story I, I find a lot of his personal sort of viewpoints uh, challenging um, as a for a lot of reasons but I'm always curious about his his viewpoints on you know he had conflicts with C.S. Lewis as opposed to as, as by you know in terms of you know Lewis's intent approach in the Narnia books and things like that. And he always had opinions and he was free to share them. And I think in that way, that's, it's very interesting to go back and, and look at now. And as we consider all these things, we're very, we're fortunate as readers to benefit from all this stuff. And, um, you know, to, to sort of, you know, not only have the text, but to peek behind the window, to form thoughts and allow that to sort of guide us in our, you know, our sort of relationship with these texts. And, going forward and, and, you know, just to go back real quick to intent, uh, you know, the, you always have an intent as an author, it's important as an author, and then um, you're entering into a conversation and then uh, <laughs> the the conversation leaves you behind, right? You're, just, you're like at a party and you go up and you're like, hey guys, how's it going? Well, I thought, and then they just walk away, right? And you're just standing there holding your drink and you're like, man, I just want to leave. And ultimately you do because you don't have any place there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, and that's your, your work. If you're lucky is the conversation you have no part in it. And, um, but, um, it, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of endlessly fascinating. You know, we talked a little bit last week with Michael when Michael was on, we talked a little bit about, the way that, you know, big sort of um, like, the you know, Marvel Comics and now Disney maybe need to treat their their artists and writers a little bit better, especially when they contribute um, to the artistic whole, which now results in how many billions of dollars of revenue. And then, you know, they sort of get a pat on the back and they get invited to the premiere and all that's great, but they don't really get properly recognized and they get sublimated unless you're Stan or Jack or someone like that these other authors of significance, there are so many 
but there are so many authors and and uh, that are involved in and that their their credit does matter their intent does matter as much as it as the as sugu was saying the the reader's uh appreciation slash uh response to it matters it all matters in my mind mm -hmm. and i think i think that's the interesting thing about dune maybe as we uh wrap up is sort of think about like my sort of macro reaction to dune is sort of an appreciation for all of it i don't i don't i'm not as passionate for dune the way i am for say star wars or something like that but i i find myself always going back to it mm. i'm always thinking about some aspect of it and um good and bad and and sort of wanting that sort of holistic thing that herbert was so in, in interested in all these different aspects of the world and I'm always thinking about that in my writing. I may, I may, you know, Suga and I may have talked about somewhere in the pod or, or off. I don't even know anymore. Um, where you know this, you know, as I was saying earlier, uh, where my teacher was telling me about, you know, Dune is a book that Dune is the book you need to read if you want to be a writer. And I'm always thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, I, I don't have the, I don't have the ability to write something like Dune. I also don't have the same uh, objectives that Herbert did. Mm -hmm. But it, it's I'm always thinking about it in terms of, you know, like, you know, in sort of sort of a it's one of those things. It's like as you approach this or that. But um, but anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> Sugu, can I ask a question like sure. to, to wrap up? Um, what would you be interested to see in the second movie? Like after reading the book and then seeing the first movie, what aspects maybe or what? What aspects from the second part of the book would you be interested in seeing? Like, I think the second part of the book is probably the one that's more difficult to put on screen than the first part, obviously. So what would you be interested to see? Uh, what kind of important parts, aspects? I think you need to do a lot of cutting. Yeah, for well... Good and, like, for good and for bad. The the story of part two, the, the overall narrative is going to be Paul uh, in the siege basically rising up as the Muad'Dib and then in the end becoming the Kwisatz Haderach and then taking on the Emperor, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's going to be the basic structure. So, part one is basically his fall from his place of privilege, from his basically his fall from what he knows. So part two is going to be his rise from, uh, the, from the unknown and taking back everything that is quote owed to him unquote. So what would I want cut? Honestly, most of the Harkonnen stuff. We've already established that they're the machinations in in you know behind the curtain. We've established that. I don't really know if we need to see like the gladiatorial fight. Uh, mm -hmm. that we got in, in Dune. I don't know if we need to spend a whole lot of time with the Harkonnens uh, for part two. Maybe like here and there, but I don't think there needs to be a lot of time spent there. I think the, the writing the sandworm is going to be in the movie, but I think it'll have less importance as the movie goes on. Like the book made it a very important part of his journey. Like that was him becoming part of the siege. Um, and I think it's going to be a very dramatic set piece. And for movie production's sake, for theater sake, for the business part of it, I think it's a scene that they really want to show. 
but as we go on, I'm, I don't know. It just seems like it's less and less important within the story of the movie itself. Mm. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Like, yeah, I was thinking as you were talking, like this, unlike Harry Potter and unlike the Hobbit, this would actually be an IP that would be worth splitting possibly into three movies. If that, Uh, if not even more. Right. I mean, the, the second part of the book is much more dense with mm-hmm. story elements. And I, you're totally right about the Harkonnens. They're sort of a red herring, right? They're, they're really important in the, in the book until they're not just the emperor who rips off the mask and goes, ha ha, it was me the, the yeah. entire time. Um, and the, the Harkonnens are a bunch of tools anyway. Uh, and it, it was fine to establish them as the bad, as the villain in the in part one. Uh, Fade Rautha hasn't even been introduced for crying out loud. I mean, he just right. he hasn't yeah. shown up at all. Right. I just kept waiting in the movie. Like, when's and I even said to the person sitting next to me, "When's Fade Rautha going to show up?" And the he was like, "Didn't you read the casting? He hasn't been cast." And he's like, "Oh crap." Uh, well, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. You guys might be disappointed in part two then, because that Villeneuve has talked about how the Harkonnens will feature more, much more prominently in part two. <laughs> okay. I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I always thought that it was kind of ridiculous to have the emperor. I, he was just such a dis, like an unimportant character until he suddenly becomes the, the person who you're really supposed to care about towards. And, but I don't know. I think that for me, I mean, I'll answer my own question a little bit. I'll be interested in the way in which they try to show the internalized. But so much of the second part of the book is really Paul struggling mm-hmm. with who he is with what he is and struggling to try to, to maintain any shred of his sanity. And he's really going through it. Some parts of the second, the second parts of the book where he's just like, he's out of it completely. Mm -hmm. I'll also be interested to see how in the world they, um, don't make his little sister. Absolutely. Like, I can't remember what it was her name. Why am I forgetting her name? Um, talk about homelessness children precocious children who are acting far beyond their age. Sugu, do you remember his little sister's name? Uh, I, I don't remember her name, but I, I want to say something like Abigail, but that wasn't correct. No. Uh, but that's going to be bizarre I'll to have it. on screen, like a three-year-old who's talking like a 48-year-old woman or something like that. And how do you... Elia. Elia, yeah. How do you show that? How do you not make that bizarre and weird? How does that like not become so jarring in the movie that it's just distracting? That's just um, it, right? Like It is jarring. And the way that Herbert made it, quote, less jarring in the movie or in the book is by making it very, very small until it wasn't right. Like, yeah, it was just kind of peppered throughout. Like it, it was it was rumors about her. Hey, did you know your your sister is really strange? Hey, your daughter is really strange. She talks, you know, like all that is just comments about her. And then when you finally see her she is with the emperor i love the, when you said that's strange that t- that tapped me into sorry where i'm stretching out but that trapped me into such a it was one of the the there there is a beauty to the writing right like that there's sure. that that moment in the text where i can't remember where it is that paul talks about the weirdness there was a strangeness or a weirdness about him that unnerved his mother right mm-hmm and that always struck me. I don't know why it was such a simple sentence, but it struck me as like a very thing, a thing that you would have read in the Bible as well, right? 
a thing about a weirdness or a strangeness about a person that sets them apart, right? I'm a stranger in a strange land. I was born out of time. Um, all these things that, that tend to make people different from those around them, an awareness, right? And, and that I think is the thing that the movie didn't get right. And it's impossible maybe to ever show in a movie, but that sense that Paul is a fundamentally strange, his existence is not right. His mm -hmm. existence is bizarre and strange and weird. And his sister's existence is even more so right. in this space with other people who are not bizarre and weird and strange, right? Like the fact that the Baron Harkonnen is disgusting, but he's not weird. He's not strange. And I, yeah, sorry. No, no. I, was, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this that probably don't apply. Um, I think I think about this much more so now in terms of the Paul and Aaliyah's relationship within the text and, and characters of like um, through in other texts um, in this discord between uh, neurotypical nerd divergent people and more so Aaliyah uh, than Paul. Um, I think that that feels more and more familiar to me, uh, you know, as I get older here. And I feel like there's a little bit of that going on with her, but I, I don't think that's Herbert's intent. I don't think he's thinking about that, but I, it, that's what it feels like to me mm. as we talk about this is that that's, it's that sort of discord of, of not, you don't fit within that space and uh, you, the strangeness and this sort of dislocation. So um, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that with, uh, with, with her uh, until just now, but yeah, that's interesting. When is that um, coming out? When's the second movie coming? Is that 2025? Uh, I, it's scheduled for 23. Okay. So we'll see, right? <laughs> that's a that's a quick turnaround for that. But yeah. Did they do the thing with Lord of the Rings where they shot all of it at the same time and then... They did not. They <laughs> okay. he didn't shoot he didn't shoot them together and and there wasn't really a plan. It was a when so the movie was advertised as Dune, and then as Shaddy was saying earlier, you go in the theater, and then it's Dune Part 1. And so I saw the movie in London, and there was this audible gasp in the theater <laughs> <laughs> when Part 1 appeared sort of grown, I should say. Um, but um, but no, he hasn't, and they haven't started filming. And, and I also, as we were talking about earlier, I think this is really three movies. Actually, ideally this is really best situated as like a streaming series where you yeah. have, um, you'd have that time and space to really sort of investigate the story. And I think a lot of people like the mini series from 2000, 2001, whatever it was, they, they sort of like that the best, I think is it, you know, just because it had the time and space to kind of dig into to some of the, the finer details of the story. But, but yeah, I'm I'm very curious about part two. I'm very curious if there will be a part three. I kind of feel like they'll get into it, and it will be part three because there's just so much going on. But we'll see. Yeah, I'm it, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to it. It's it's kind of a good thing that they're taking time. And I said this when I was in the theater. After for whatever reason, I wasn't surprised that the, that it, there was going to be a, a second part because I think I had been reading for months that mm -hmm. there just had to be a second movie. That there was no way that they could finish everything in the first movie or in one movie, and that was a good thing. Um, maybe it had just been a rumor. I think it had been going around for a while, so I was sort of prepared for it. But I just, I think I said to someone, like, well, the second part of the book, there is a, what, a five-year 
time jump, right? Like it's, it's been five years or so or three years. I can't remember how long, but it has been Something a couple. like that. It's mm-hmm. been a few years. And so maybe the time between movies will, you know, you get a little bit of hair on Timothy Chalamet's face, make it a little bit more rugged like he's been on the desert a little bit longer. He's kind of a pretty boy, very much so. He, he did have a goatee in the French Dispatch. So he can act. He, <laughs> he, can, ha- he can have a little bit of range. Um, that that's yeah, it's, he, it's possible. Um, I'll say like I'll, I'll be really interested to see the the how they try to show a little bit more of the the culture of the sitch. Um, you know, uh, for those who maybe aren't aware, uh, I'm half Arabic, uh, and so you know I, I lived for a few years in Jordan as a kid. Grew up obviously with Arabic culture in the home and reading and I, I i felt called not called i felt a connection to for example uh edward said's uh orientalism because it was fascinating to read the way in which i mean i grew up probably somewhat i, I don't know how exactly your experience growing up um sugu as a, as a non-white person in the midwest but you know like or as a half-white person myself in the midwest but like that sense of both being people being fascinated by the Middle East and Middle Eastern culture, but also being repelled by it, right, uh, at the same time, and and I think Dune struggles with that as well. Yeah, it struggles with with finding the Middle East to be, and that's part of Said's writing is that Orientalism is both a love and a hate of the Orient of the East, right? It's both mm-hmm. a fascination by it, of the mystery of it, the beauty of it, the sexuality of it, and a repulsion of it. And I'll be interested to see the way in which I would imagine 2022 or 2023, there will be a lot more respect, probably similar to the way that uh, Moon Knight attempted to, you know, to really include people uh, from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where all those people were from, whether they were from Egypt or elsewhere uh, in, the, in the making of, of Moon Knight right have been to egypt it's that's not the egypt that i've been to in in moon Knight. I'll, I'll just say that and also a little bit i i we you know we this you can cut this part out i i was watching a little bit of uh, miss marvel last night that was also interesting to see how marvel is or how disney rather since disney owns both moon Knight and miss marvel now right trying to portray members of uh, the community right of community of fans just different kinds of communities different kinds of people right and so it'll be interesting to see the way that this is portrayed in Dune as well, right? How is the sitch? What's that? What what does that look like? Is it Orientalist still in its viewing? Right? Is everything cover? Is everything a rug? Right? Like the, the sitch is covered in rugs, right? And everybody's drinking shy, right? So, uh, which listen, my grandma, my teta used to make a lot of tea too. We drank a lot of tea and a lot of coffee as kids with way too much sugar inside of it, mm-hmm. which I, <laughs> which I kind of felt about the, the, the spice melange drinks, but yeah, that, that's something I'm interested to see. How do you handle that? And how does it not just become you know a caricature? How is it not racist? That was actually is? something I really wanted to talk with you about sometime, even either on this podcast or at a, you know, in a separate conversation is mm-hmm. about that part of it. Cause you have that, connection to dune that that i don't have but i have seen when other properties try to address being indian and Mm. sometimes it hits sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's just kind of just a little bit unnerving that it kind of throws the whole thing off 
I felt when I so when I first read the text, it's weird, you know. This is not particularly important to the to the podcast, but you know, when you're half of anything, when you're multicultural, multiracial, multi ethnic, whichever you want to call it, according to the United States government, I'm not technically multiracial. Arabs are considered Caucasians, so multicultural maybe. You're always existing in this sort of liminal space, right? Where, boy, and this is particularly about. We won't get into this about Japanese culture because half is a word in Japanese that has a lot of it's very mm-hmm. it's it's a weird thing like people who live in Japan I didn't use half as much as I do now because it's just such a part of the language in Japan but you know growing up in in America I was often told well you're half American right so, no I'm 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 just American I'm half Arab half white person I suppose which is a weird thing um I did used to call myself half Arab half American or just call myself Arab American eventually as I got older and then when I went to the Middle East, it was you know, living in Jordan, uh, living in Cyprus, which is not technically a part of the Middle East, but there were a lot of Arabs there as well, close to the Turkish side. I lived on the Greek side, but close to the Turkish side. And dealing with a lot of Arabs because my dad worked for a satellite company that was sending Christian, it was a Christian satellite station that was intended to send into the Middle East. So as a sort of missionary service, you know, I was the opposite. I was not Arabic, I was just half white. So. I grew up in a, a weird way that I didn't necessarily identify as Arab, and I still don't. I, I often tell people I'm not really Arabic. Um, I'm Arabic by blood. By maybe in my childhood, I spoke Arabic, and I ate. I grew up eating. I can tell you that I didn't have white bread until, uh, or like whatever you call it, like shokpan. Sorry, that's the Japanese word. I didn't have sandwich bread <laughs> until I was like in the third grade. I wasn't allowed to eat anything but pita bread before that because it was too American. Things like that. But reading Dune, it didn't strike me as Arabic culture reading it. It struck mm-hmm. me as a lot of Arabic words. You know, like mm-hmm. jihad is such a weird word. I'm not Muslim. Um, my family's not Muslim. They're, they're Christian, they're Greek Orthodox, um, because they're from Bejala, which is in Palestine. It's a small town that's close to Bethlehem. And there are a lot of uh, Greek Orthodox Christians there, which is why my family's Christian. So, like, but even so, a word like jihad is a very problematic dangerous word yeah particularly when i was growing up in america you know like 2001 i was 15 that was a that was you know not some i didn't telegraph that i was arabic yeah right didn't didn't not want to let people know you know i i I, it was obvious i was the only arabic kid in school in effingham illinois but yeah so i I just didn't identify and then reading dune it doesn't like it strikes you as yeah i I understand what this person he's choosing this context because maybe in the 60s it was a for him perhaps a fascinating tableau or a setting for him to put his story into and helped him to craft his story right and he was also doing work on the sand dunes out in was it oregon Uh, washington state i can't remember yeah so it just maybe those connections is sort of the way that the creative process that just comes together. But yeah, I'd actually be interested to hear what other Arabs think about that. Mm-hmm. I've never, I've never had conversation with other Arabs about Dune. And I certainly, even leading up to the movie, I really didn't hear people talking about the Arab pretty. And then it's some of the conversations about it are, are worth having because I think a lot of the things that he's talking about are things that are very pertinent right now. And they're always going to be pertinent because we're always going to be dealing with um you know injustice and and the the you know the the sort of the cruelty of the way that these things then politics and religion and 
business sort of, you know, they dictate our world to us. And so, you know, th those things are always going to be relevant, unfortunately. And so th they have, they have sort of value there. And, and I think the, the book books, um, they have, there's just a lot to mine. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people stop with, um, they get to my experiences they get to that while well, Paul is just um he's just a, a Christ figure or he's a he's a chosen one figure or whatever insert uh whatever here and then they're like well that's all it is and I don't I don't think that's all it is I think there's a there's a lot more to it and and you know I I think the most fascinating thing about it is the way that it develops and it's unfortunate that I like the later books less, but I find as I get older, um, that there's, they offer more the, the sort of the fil the philosophy and that stuff, they offer more, um, to me anyway, um, you know, to think about, you know, yeah. Like I, I feel like it, yeah, very thoughtful and they're very, you know, the, the, the speculation about that, this idea of escaping the the wheel and the cycle is 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 really fascinating to me and um I, I think the way that he goes about it is 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 interesting yeah that'll do it for today folks thanks again for joining us once again i'm darby harn and you can find more information about me and my books at my website darbyharn.com i'm also on twitter at darby harn sugu how can they find out more about us in the podcast you can follow us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can reach us at our email address, shelfwarmers at gmail.com. Send us feedback about the show, your thoughts, opinions, recommendations, and insights on our perspectives. We're always happy to hear from you, our audience, and we'd love to share your opinions on our next show. Again, that's shelfwarmers at gmail.com. And if email isn't your thing, we're also on Twitter. You can reach us at shelfwarmers. Give us a holler. We have new episodes every Friday. As always, remember to stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and get vaccinated when you can. Stick around to listen to a free clip of more content from us. Subscribe today and you can hear the rest of the following and more. Bye-bye. <laughs>